Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to uh, look at God's Word in a moment, but I want to spend a little time first setting up why we're studying uh, this theme for this week. Um, you know, whenever we're, we're planning a youth camp, that, that's a matter of both trying to discern just what are the aspects of God's Word that we need to hear, and what are the conditions in, in the culture that we live in, and, and, and the things that attach themselves to our lives that uh, conflict with God furthering us in Christ and his purposes for us. And so uh, this, this quality theme, uh, it, it came as I was reading through First Thessalonians and just drawn to some things that Paul was, was saying to this church and about this church, and we'll consider some of that in just a moment. Um, but this, this word quality, it, it's used as both a noun and an adjective, right? So, you know, typical definition here in your notes, quality is an essential or distinctive characteristic or attribute. Uh, it's a character trait. And as an adjective, it, it means having a high level of value or excellence. Now, the thing is, our culture has a conflicted relationship with this concept of quality. Uh, we live in a world that promotes equality, as it defines it. And, and that's not totally a bad thing, right? We, we, we should uh, care for one another. We should not look down on any people. Every person is made in the image of, and likeness of God and therefore is deserving of love and respect and compassion, but kind of the way that our culture defines equality, and we, we kind of play with this a little bit some in our, in our times together, but, but the kind of equality that our culture celebrates is one that really ignores significant differences, uh, real differences, like the difference between a man and a woman. Uh, but that idea didn't, didn't come from nowhere, right? It's, it's down the stream from other assumptions. And you and I, we've, we've grown up in a world that from when we were really little tells us that everybody is special, right? Uh, that to make any distinctions at all is to discriminate. But if, if there's only equality in the sense of everyone being the same, then you can't have real quality. But, but here's the irony, right? The reality is no one is inspired by mediocrity. Nobody just says, you know what? I want to grow up to be just like everyone else <laughs> with no distinction, nothing that differentiates me. That's not what we celebrate. We, we take notice of the people who stand out because they have unique abilities. And so all the while, while, while our culture is, is growing to value equality, there, there's also more and more significance given to this elite class of influencers and their pop stars and their sports icons and their celebrities. And, and those people matter more in, in our culture and in your lives than they ever have in really the history of, of the world, uh, the, the, these, these identities. And so we still, uh, we still value excellence. And uh, I was watching the, the film The Incredibles uh, with my kids recently. J just let me tell you, one of the joys of having children and having kids who are three and two is, is getting to have an excuse to rewatch all the Pixar films with them. Uh, and I'm just loving that. But um, there's that scene in The Incredibles where um, Helen and Bob are experiencing tension and they're, they're arguing back and forth. And, and she says, are you, are you even going to our son's graduation? And he says, it's not a graduation. He's moving from the fourth grade to the fifth grade. It's psychotic. They keep creating new ways to celebrate mediocrity. But if someone is genuinely ex exceptional 
And, and so he, he wants his son to be able to stand out. And he says, you know, you know why, why can't he participate in, in sports? And she says, you know why we can't do that, Bob? And he says, why, he'd be great. And she says, this is not about you. Right? He, he, wants, he wants his son to be able to be someone incredible. But as you follow the rest of the storyline, uh, really that's just about the glory of, of Bob and, and reliving his glory days, and it ultimately puts his, his family in danger as a result. Uh, but what we'll see this week is that God wants us to stand out. He wants us to be recognizable in this world, to be excellent, but for him, and for the display of his grace. Uh, we also live in a world that invites us to experience quantity. You know, there's that classic quality versus quantity thing. Uh, and, and it tells us to welcome everything into our lives. Just keep adding more, more information, more ideas. You, you know, a hundred years ago, the average person would counter in their lifetime the amount of information that's in one edition of the New York Times, let alone all the stuff that comes streaming in on your phone. And, and this, this competes with quality, right? Because then there, there's no real distinction between the junk and, and what's really worthwhile. And so uh, we, we live in, in a, a clickbait culture, right? Everybody's familiar now with the whole language of you won't believe what happens next. I literally lost it. And yet you're still deceived. Well, well maybe I want to find out what happens next. I, I pulled from uh, some ridiculous clickbait headlines. Baby ducks see water for the first time. Can you believe what they do? Now, I think what the article goes on to say is they drank water. But you still clicked it, right? You still want to, as lame as that is, you wanted to find out. Uh, I'm missing one from the, let's see. There it is. When you find out what these kids are jumping into, your jaw will drop. Well, what could it be? Is, is it concrete? Is it, a, is it a pit of pythons? Uh, he says, when you read these 19 shocking food facts, you'll never want to eat again. Does anybody believe that? I mean, as delicious as food is, uh, although I think after, I don't know, how'd you guys feel about the food tonight? Was it like never want to eat again quality or how to, it was all right. A thumbs up, Stephen? Never want to eat again. All right, that's good. So every now and then there's a, there's a clickbait headlines exist because there's an element of truth in them. But uh, websites today don't really care about the quality of the content, right? Or even how long you spend on the page. They just want to generate a page view that they can then build to their advertisers, right? Every time you go to that page, they make money, which is why, I don't know if you notice how they do this, they separate everything on slideshows now, where you have to keep clicking, next slide, next slide, next slide. Why do they do that? Because they don't want to put it all on one screen? No, because every click is more money that they get to make as you're drawn in. It's like, oh, I, this is kind of stupid, but I still want to know, maybe on slide 19, that's when everything, that's when I will literally lose it. Um, but but in, this, in this setting of, of quantity, it, it reaches into more arenas than just information. Um, teen culture today is, is characterized by an attitude of always do more, always welcome more, always achieve more in your life. And, and I'm glad 
that you guys and your generation, you want to do some things, uh, right? But, but now it's not enough to just be really good at one sport. Uh, you have to excel at, at baseball and basketball and football or volleyball and cheerleading and dancing. Uh, you got to do music and drama and learn multiple instruments. And, and then this is, this is the case in the academic world as well, right? There's just more and more to run after. And, and extracurricular, I, I mean, high school students today do more extracurricular activities than I think I could ever stand. I mean, key club, really. I don't even really know what key club is, but hey, that's, that, that gets added to the list of everything else. Now, uh, my point is not that that's wrong, but at, at, at some point, eventually, you have to make a decision. You can't just keep inviting more into your life. And listen, youth ministry today is getting eaten alive by an overcrowded teen schedule. But if you're good at one thing, it, it comes with certain trade-offs. You know, we have the Olympics coming up soon. And just consider the, the schedule that an Olympic athlete experiences, right? Basically, their whole life is built around one thing. They, they, they typically will train for at least six hours a day all year round, and, and on their diet and their schedule and where they live, all of that is shaped by this one pursuit. And so they have to say no to a whole lot of other things in order to excel at this one thing. So here's the question we're raising this week. Are there any real priorities to life? Might there be a few all-consuming passions that are really worth your attention? And we're going to talk about some of them this week. Well, finally, there, there's this, this concept of quality versus quackery. All right, quality, it, it means real, basically, right? Quality food, which you didn't get tonight. Uh, quality products. But the opposite of quality is quackery. There's a new word to add to your vocabulary. A quack is a person who pretends professionally or publicly to have skill, knowledge, or qualifications he or she does not possess. And so a quack is someone who's inauthentic. Now, ironically, even while we detest this as a culture, we advance this approach all the time. But because it used to be the case that social success... Right? Getting noticed in this world uh, was based on certain virtues. Right? Things like chivalry, or being a gentleman, sacrifice, laying down your life for your family or for your country. That, that, that's what got you noticed and applauded. Real qualities and accomplishments. But now, people become famous not so much for what they've done, uh, but for the image they portray, right? And reality TV just kind of lives off on this. But uh, why is it today that a Snapchat from Kim Kardashian of a conversation between Kanye West and Taylor Swift is news that we're supposed to care about and is supposed to take up uh, precious brain cells that we have? Um, but the thing is that the digital world has made this accessible to all of us now. All of us have the ability, and many of you do, to, to manage your social platform, to present a certain version of yourself, a certain 
image, that how much of it's really true, how much of that is like really your life all the time and just w- or just one picture caught at a good angle and a nice filter. Um, you have uh, today, the past couple of years, we've seen the rise of the, the Instagram model, right? It used to be if you become a model, you're, you're connected to a certain fashion line. Uh, well, now there's this, this expectation for any girl should be, should be models, should be promoting themselves, should be somebody that is visually seen by an onlooking world, but it's just part of this broader posture that we have where we live in a fantasy. And it becomes a way of escaping the real world, right? If you're, if you're in a boring situation, if you're at your grandparents' house or you're at a funeral, uh, you used to have to just endure that, but now you pull out your phone and you can access entertainment or enter an arena where you can be awesome. Now, maybe Instagram or social media isn't your thing, but gaming is, right? And that, that's, that's an arena that you can enter and you can conquer and you can be awesome. And maybe you're somebody who's known in the gaming world. Or I don't know, now some of you guys have, have been caught up in the whole Pokemon Go thing. And uh, I'm not going to bash that. I mean, hey, whatever it takes to get you outside. Uh, but there, there have been some pretty uh, interesting circumstances that have been created by this, and you're aware of many of them. But uh, one, one that I saw was that Arlington National Cemetery had to tweet this. They said, we do not consider playing Pokemon Go to be appropriate decorum on the grounds of Arlington National Cemetery. We ask all visitors to refrain from such activities. Activity. And I saw somebody post this in response. America then, 18 to 35-year-olds sacrificing their lives for their country. America now, 18 to 35-year-olds looking for Pikachu. <laughs> right? We, we, we all, we want to achieve something. We, we, we want to accomplish things. And, and I think what the Pokemon Go thing tells us is, is we want a world that's transcendent. That's, that's more than just this natural, visible stuff. And we, we want to be able to accomplish something in that kind of world. But we re- retreat to a device in order to do that. Well, I, I want to put you in touch this week with some real quality. Right? What among the many things in this world that you could pursue and that compete for your attention, what are the main things? What should be the defining identity for your life? As, as a Christian teenager, what should have your focus? What does a healthy Christian faith look like, whether at 15 or 55? What are the essentials? Let's turn 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Spending our time here in this letter, Paul describes the sincere faith that the Thessalonian believers have, and, and, and they're the real deal. And he highlights some of the characteristics that are evident among them, and, and this, this helps us as well. These are the qualities that I want you to be aiming at and experiencing. So First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're going to spend our time this week focusing on four qualities from this text. First, loved by God, looking like Jesus, living for God, and longing for Jesus. And so the first one tonight is uh, loved by God. These will each be our, our main sessions. And, and the most important quality is not something that we do but it does show up in our lives. And so here's the big idea for tonight. It's in your notes. God's loving choice of us is evidenced in the convictions we hold about God. God's loving choice of us is evidenced in the convictions that we hold about God. Verse 4 again, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you. How do we know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Here's how uh, commentator Mark Howell puts it. He says, when you follow Jesus Christ, you do more than choose a different life. In a real sense, a different life chooses you. And there's a cause and effect relationship here. So I I want us to take a look at the effects and consider whether they're present in our lives, and then we'll look at the underlying cause. So first, the effect, convictions about God. Let's get a little backstory on this church, because they face some challenging circumstances here. Thessalonica was a cultural center. It was, it was kind of like New York, or LA, or even New Orleans. It, it was the proud capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Right? That, that, that region is mentioned in what we just read a moment ago. And, and, and so Thessalonica is the capital there, and, and it was a port city, and it was at the intersection of two major Roman roads. And so it was right at the center of trade and of the exchange of ideas and philosophies. And it was also a context for religious pluralism. All right, so you had in Thessalonica, you, you had uh, several scenes. There, there, there were the Greek temples all over the place. There was the, the religion of the Roman pantheon, the, the pantheon of gods that people had allegiance to. Uh, there was what's called the cult of the emperor, which was basically the, the Caesar was also worshipped as a god. 
And there were all sorts of practices that were associated with that, that you were expected. If, you, if, you're, a, if you're a citizen of the area, you're going to be about that, and, and, and that's just going to be normal life for you. And it would be really strange if, for whatever weird reason, you weren't doing the whole emperor worship thing. It's just kind of what it meant to be uh, a citizen in the, in the Roman Empire. Uh, there was also a significant Jewish population in Thessalonica who were attending the synagogues. But in the midst of, of this religious scene, there, there was a, a spiritual darkness and a confusion that covered the city. And we find out about the start of this church from the book of Acts. And you know, if you're not as familiar with, with the Bible, the, the letters of Paul, Thessalonians, is a letter that Paul wrote to this church. Um, and, and if you want backstory on some of this, the book of Acts, it, it, it tells the history of, of the church, and sometimes you're, you're given insight into some of the backstory on, on some of the letters. And uh, so in Acts chapter 17... Verse 1, this is Luke writing, he says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And the, the, the heart of his message is, this Jesus I proclaim to you is the Christ. And, and that would have been such a countercultural idea, as much as it is today. Uh, Paul describes in 1 Corinthians as a scandal to the Jews. You know, we're used to this, but the, the language of a crucified Messiah, you know, that, 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 that just sounded like a blatant contradiction. The Messiah, the one who's going to come in power and reign over everybody, is going to die a humiliating and terrible death. What are you, are you kidding me? Right? That, 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 that kind of sounds like you're, you're joining together the words nice serial killer when you say a crucified Messiah. It just doesn't make any sense. And he says it was folly to Gentiles to have an exclusive Lord in the midst of all the other things that you were supposed to support and applaud. But there's a response here. And a group of Thessalonians, they came to faith. It says they were persuaded. There's something about Paul's words and his reasoning from Scripture that stirred their minds and resonated with their hearts. And so Paul and his companions begin to minister in the area and they want these new believers to know the basics of the faith and for them to be cared for, for a church to be established, but soon there's a problem. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, that's a Awesome phrase right there, not in the way that they mean it. These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, right? Here, here's the key issue, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And so as a result, Paul and Silas are driven out of the city. And so a few months later, Paul's concerned about the people he just left behind. He had three weeks with them. They came to faith. He had a little time to minister to them, and then they're kicked out of town. And so months later, he sends back Timothy to check on them, to see how things are going. And, and Timothy returns, and he brings his report to Paul, and then Paul writes this letter. So that's, that's where we're at here in this history. And, 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 and there are a couple of questions and issues that, that Paul will address with them, but from what we've already read in chapter 1, it's obvious that significant growth has taken place among these new believers. Already, they're setting an example to the people around them. Already, they're, they're living with a public faith and demonstrating that Jesus is precious to them. And the amazing thing is that Paul recognizes that suffering and persecution have come to their doorstep as well. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, For you, brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did. All right, so here's the question that I have when I read this. And I hope you you ask questions of the Bible and you look for answers here. here. Here's the question. What causes you to receive Christ and continue in the faith when from the moment you do so, the people who just shared this news with you are driven out of town and you are immediately held in suspicion and put under threat? What does that? Can you imagine this, these circumstances? You don't have any Christian family. There's no youth group. And the only leaders that you've ever known were were brought before the government before they were kicked out of town. And now, the more that people find out you're part of that weird new religion who worships a crucified Jew, the less they want to do business with you, associate with you, be fair with you in transactions, let alone want to be your friend and you're quickly realizing that this decision to place your faith in Jesus has come at a cost. And yet you say, this is worth it. That's what they said. What does this? Listen, that's not some super version of Christianity for saints and martyrs, right? While we just have this basic version Unless you have what the Thessalonians had here, you will not survive in the days ahead, no matter where you are. If you're saved, it's because you've experienced the same reality that they have. What's that? Verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There's, there's a supernatural source here. And we'll consider that in, in the second half, but, but now I just want to zoom in on this phrase here. Full conviction. I love that phrase. And I want you to experience this. It's one thing to engage with the truth about God at the level of agreeing with some words. It's another thing to experience their power and to build your life on them, right? That, that's what convictions are. Convictions are not incidental to your life. They're, they're in your bones. They've become a part of who you are. 
They're inescapable to you. The, you, you build your life on them. They inform how you think about everything else. It, you're standing on them so that if they move, you move. Right? That's the kind of place that they have in your life. But too many young people politely agree with Christianity, but their engagement with its reality communicates that little about their life would be different if Christianity were false. And that kind of faith will not last. It'll simply be drowned out by the cultural noise. The convictions, they're, they're more than mere belief, more than just acknowledging the right things. It's not enough just to have some good information. And it's interesting to, to see how this plays out in, in, in different arenas. Uh, did you know that in the NFL, there is clear data that demonstrates that if a team would always go for it on fourth down rather than punt, and they just made that decision, every time we come to fourth down, we're going to go for it rather than punt. On average, they would win two more games per season. And most coaches know that. Why don't they do that? Well, because nobody does that, right? It just doesn't seem reasonable when it comes to that decision. Why would you risk it? Why would you take that kind of risk, even if there's a clear demonstration that this is true? Or, you know, in the, in the NBA, um, free throws, uh, if you're going to go overhand versus underhand, it is much more challenging to make an overhand free throw than it is to make an underhand free throw. And nobody makes an underhand free throw these days, right? But the Hall of Famer Rick Barry, his, his free throw record, he, he would make 90% of his free throws. He would miss maybe 9 or 10 per season. Just to put it in comparison, LeBron James misses about 150 free throws a season, right? And that's, that's just typical. Um, but what would Rick Barry do? He, he would go granny shot on the free throws, and he was consistent. Why don't people do that? because it looks stupid, <laughs> right? They'd rather look good than be an excellent player. We, we sacrifice quality in exchange for the opinions of people. And we'll explore this a little bit tomorrow, but here's the point. Just knowing this information is not enough. Like Rick Barry, you have to be so convinced that it's true that you don't care about the social pressures to conform. Josh McDowell says, a conviction goes beyond having a personal preference about something. It goes deeper than a subjective opinion. Having convictions is being so thoroughly convinced that something is absolutely true that you take a stand for it regardless of the consequences. We need more than personal opinions or lightly held suspicions about God, truth, and reality. We need convictions. If each of us and our young people are going to risk rejection, persecution, or even worse, we need to be sure that we are committing our lives to something genuine, something true, something real. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard me until that day when what has been entrusted to me. Like, why are you not ashamed, Paul? Why aren't you ashamed to be associated with somebody who has cost you so much in this life, who's put you in real situations of not only ridicule, but physical pain? Why is that not a problem for you, Paul? 
because I know him. I know whom I believed. And I'm convinced that this is true about him. I'm convinced his promises are real. I'm convinced that every sacrifice today will be worth it. Here's my concern. I think too many of us remain unconvinced. And it's not because we've got some sort of arguments as to why this isn't true. And it's not even because we maybe question whether this, this is real. It's just that what's most influential in your life when it comes to shaping your decisions and your pursuits is not really facts, but feelings. We live in a world where facts take a backseat to feelings all the time. And this affects us, right? Even if we, we don't agree with that philosophy, yeah, I adopt that, that's what I'm going to do. It, it, it shapes us in ways that we don't really realize. We're, we're less concerned about what's objectively true than we are about how it makes us feel or what it seems to gain us right now, which is why I can, I can speak on high school campuses and watch students not disagree with what I'm saying, not have some sort of argument back as to, hey, I, I think that's wrong, and here are the reasons why I don't think Jesus really rose from the dead. They don't have that but they still don't care. It's like just because something is true doesn't mean it has a claim on them. doesn't mean it actually changes what they have to do with their life. It's not enough for it to be true. They don't feel like they have any need to respond. This is not an age of convictions. This is an age of bumper stickers, slogans, and memes. And sadly, the, the latest idea to enter your head or show up on the screen is the one that ends up mattering most. You know, when you're not grounded by convictions, by deeply felt facts, then as Paul puts it elsewhere, you're just tossed about by every wind of doctrine. You're taken in by passing cultural fads and the opinions of your peers. You can only be reactive. You're only able to, to respond to what's presented to you. And so you become a slave of your emotions to the ups and downs of life, to what's popular or not. And so there's, there's no consistency in your spiritual growth because it, it just trails behind responsively to how you feel today, or whether or not this seems really cool right now, or whether or not something else is really exciting. Without convictions, we're abandoned to whatever current feelings or reactions we have. And this leads to a, a compartmentalization of faith. Right? You know how things can exist in different compartments, and uh, I don't know, I used to bring food uh, to school in one of those ca you know, Tupperware cases. Uh, you guys like your food to touch, or you like keep it separate, and that's more righteous? Separate? All right, I'm with you. Separate but equal? I don't know. Um, compartments, right? Something can exist over here and not over here, and, and, and people will do that with, with the Christian faith, and that's always been a problem. I shared some of the, these thoughts with, with our youth group recently. That, that, that's always, there's always been youth pastors who, who've said, you know, yeah, there's a concern about teenagers and compartmentalized faith, and that's not new. What's new is you guys don't seem to think it's a problem, right? Whereas, in, you know, 
when I was in youth and generation that preceded me, we were aware that it doesn't seem like the lordship of Jesus is consistently influencing all areas of life. But we didn't necessarily want other people to know that. But, but today, that doesn't seem to be something to be concerned about, something to be embarrassed about, right? And so a compartmentalized faith, it exists in some limited settings, Right on, on the question of religion, the, the box next to Christianity is checked, and so you're fine, fine with coming to church, fine with uh, being a part of, of youth camp, but the way that you are in the locker room or at your friend's house or how you go about relationships or how you deal with your parents or how you are on social media or how, how you engage the internet when you're anonymous and no one else is looking. These have no connection to the authority of Jesus Christ. And so it's like you've invented different personalities for different settings and you're not even bothered by that. After all, the social media profiles of your Christian friends indicate that they live just as much of a compartmentalized faith as you do. Now, years ago, C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is either of no importance, if it's false, or it's of infinite importance, if it's true, but the one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. And the reason why is because it's impossible to be casually associated with a risen Savior. But my, my concern is that some Christian teenagers today seem to be trying to prove Mr. Lewis wrong. They're, they're okay with moderation. They're okay with kind of dialing it back a little bit, with not being too serious about this whole being saved thing. And look, that, that can be a temptation for any of us, but, but for some of us, that might be because we haven't really experienced what Paul is describing here. There's something that the Thessalonians encountered, something that they, they heard that convinced them, and it was the voice of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. This is in your notes. This is what he says. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers, right? Genuine faith, it treats the Bible and it treats gospel preaching for what it really is, God speaking. What, what, what causes us to respond to Christ and follow him and build our lives on his authority is the conviction that he has addressed us. You've experienced this? Have, have you opened this book and have you encountered God here? Have you, have you discerned your creator reaching back at you and pulling you in, looking you in the eye and calling you to follow him? Because Paul talks about receiving the word of God for what it really is. It really is something right? It is something objectively. It's something whether or not you feel it. It's something whether or not it bores you or excites you. It already is the Word of God and faith. The kind of experience that he's describing here recognizes, I know what this is. You hear the accent of God in Scripture. These are not some nice human thoughts and inspirational sayings that you could take or leave. By, by definition, God's Word comes with authority, Right? It commands obedience. It really dictates how you live your life. And so 
what we find here is not optional for us. Right? O- obedience to your parents is not optional. Right? I know it's a, it's a thing that you can joke about, you can, you, you can laugh with your friends about how you disregarded what they said, but to treat these words as if, hey, that's nice to one day live by if you really care about that sort of thing while you make excuses for how you're just blatantly ignoring what God has said, that is not treating this book for what it really is. It's treating it like it's words on the page that are on the outside of you rather than the voice of God making a claim on your life. Honesty and truthfulness are not optional. Let's not grow to be okay with deception, with lies that we try to manage and keep them small, but still they're, they're useful to not always have to tell the truth. Treating this as optional. Right? Sexual integrity is not optional. Forgiving others, relating to them with a posture of mercy, even when they've hurt you, even when you just want to punish them. And the Bible says, forgive as you have been forgiven. Show them kindness. And it's so easy to just walk away from that and say, yeah, maybe one day you're not treating this book for what it really is. It really, it really is the word of God for you. You obey it. You recognize the value of scripture. Do you want to know it more? You want to understand it? You fight to, to see insights and, and revelation and, and what God has provided for us. You want what it promotes to be what you love. You want what, what God is excited about to be what you're excited about. You want it to shape your value system in the midst of these shifting ideas of this world. How do you hold on to this book? Are you embarrassed by it? Are you reluctant to represent it? John Piper says, The risen Christ has the right to tell every man, woman, and child on this planet today what they should do and think and feel. You believe that? You believe that for yourself? And are you not ashamed of that in a world that laughs that down? Like This is a conviction. This will influence everything in your life. There's no way that you can be casually associated with that idea. Yeah, maybe Jesus has that kind of authority. Jesus was always driving people to a point of decision because they wanted to be around him, they wanted to be okay with him, but they didn't want him to be Lord. And he says, take your pick. And he's always just tossing it back their way as he walks with people in the Gospels because he knows there's only two options here. Well, here's the question. What creates this reality? What the Thessalonians had here, this this sense of an all-absorbing call, what produces this gripping, arresting, sincere faith? Verse 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. That's it. That's the cause. 
It's the sovereign choice and electing love of God. And this is the kind of theology that causes you to endure today. Paul is saying, we know God has chosen you because we see your response. We see your conversion. We see how you hold on to what he says. And so their, their election is evidenced in these qualities coming from their lives. But the thing is, these qualities are not the reason why they are elect. And, and Mark Howell says, here's an important theological point. They were not the elect of God because they worked at their faith. Rather, because they were the elect of God, they had a faith that worked. Right? How do you know there's power in the room? Well, because the lights are on, right? There, 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 there's, there are colors and there's brightness and that evidences. Now, that, that doesn't create the power, Right? There's an underlying source, there's an underlying reason, there, there's an electrical current that does that, but it's on display, it's visible, it's, it's real, and so you know, hey, if, if these lights are shining, there must be electricity that's functioning here, that's working and that's what Paul is saying here. We see, we see the lights come on, we see the color, we see the brightness, and we know there's a source here. There, there's a supernatural source to this that accomplishes that. And you know, maybe earlier, previous point, you might have been thinking, that's not my problem. I'm not compartmentalized. Uh, I'm not even on social media. I don't even care about that kind of thing, right? I read the Bible. I, I, I know that it's, it's God's word. You have these convictions. You love Jesus. Great. Don't be proud by that. Don't look down on other people because of that. Because what Paul's saying here is you didn't do that. Our faith, it results from the prior love and choice of God. If you are a believer, it's because God has always determined to love you and to set his affection on you. And this is just amazing. And this is really true. And, and how I want you to experience this and for this to be a conviction for your life. This is what John Stott says. He says, why I am a Christian is due ultimately neither to the influence of my parents and teachers, nor my own personal decision for Christ, but to the hound of heaven. That is, it is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And listen, if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. If you're a believer today, it's because God did not allow you to run head on into destruction. From all eternity, he loved you. He knew you. He knew your name. He knew that he would make you. He knew that he would choose you. He knew that he would call you out of darkness. He knew that he would love you with a persistent and enduring and protective and redeeming love. And that love wasn't based in you. Right, this, is a, this is a quality that if you have it, it's not because you're qualified for it. It's just because God wanted to. He wanted to be merciful and, and without 
ever needing any motivating reason in you, without needing you to be nice, without needing you to be uh, impressive or really cool or really moral or somebody who is a good person in, in society. God didn't need any of those reasons and none of those reasons were present. It was just because he said, I want him. I want her. She's going to be mine. He will be mine no matter what. That's what causes this. That's what Paul says, Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us. Right, this, is, this is all of us together who are in Christ and this is every single one of us personally. He, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before. And before the foundation of the world, you know, this, is, this is kind of blow your mind, nosebleed theology stuff. But for, for God who's out of, outside of time, it's kind of hard to, to think in terms of what did God do first and what did God do second. And so he's just describing this. But, but, but think of it like this. Before God prioritized making the world, if you're in him, he prioritized loving you. Before the plans of creation materialized and he said let there be light and he created a universe and he made worlds and planets and molecules and animals and everything that exists, there had already been from always and for forever in the heart of God your name. Friends, do not trade that in for something cheap, for passing affection, for a, a quick sense that maybe somebody, maybe some other human being who's 14 years old and still trying to figure out life themselves, maybe they'll like me. Is that really impressive? It's not like this. He chose us before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is, this is what keeps me going in this life. Look, we all, we all want a sense of purpose. We all want unconditional love. We, we know our flaws. We know, we know the ways that we are fakes. Everybody has this moment, and if you never have it, you're just oblivious. That staring in the mirror moment of, what if people really knew what I was like? What if people really knew what was inside of my heart? What if people really knew the insincerity behind what I say? What if that was all shown the, the the disaffection that would come from that, the turning away, the way that they would treat me. And so you're scared. I hope they never find out. God's always known. He's always known everything. And he's always loved. This is what keeps me going keeps me from joining the trash heap of wasted lives is the awareness that God has from all eternity set me apart for him. He loves me. 
He will always love me. And you need to know this. This is better news than anything else that could come streaming into your life. This, this gives me confidence to continue on in this difficult world. And, and listen, it gives me confidence to do something like this week. Because you know, I can speak for myself. I can speak for Eric and Keith and Keith Collins and Emily when we, 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 we present messages and we try to wrestle with passages and get a sense of what, what does God want to communicate. There, there's this fear of what if this has no effect? What if this doesn't do anything for them? What, what if you guys just kind of hear some thoughts and you're like, yeah, I kind of know some of that already or yeah, that, that's nice to know and then just wander off into life unaffected. That concerns me. But you know what, what keeps me from just being abandoned to that thought is this reality. God is determined to choose people. He's determined to save people. He's determined to transform people and he's determined to do so through the work of ministry that he's called me to. So John Piper says, the certainty that there are elect ones doesn't make me stop preaching. It gives me confidence that I'm not wasting my time when I'm preaching. God has a people. They will hear. God has a people. He's, he's got an unstoppable purpose. It, it will go forth in this world no matter how dark the times, no matter how disinterested society seems in the things of God. The Lord will always have a people called by his name. And one of the things I want you to consider tonight is this question. Are you among them? You in this text? Eric, you can go ahead and come back up, bro. And when we preach, when we do ministry, we want to motivate you. Right? We want to convince you. I, I bring arguments. I try to, try to identify patterns of life. I want you to see something. I want you to experience what the Thessalonians did when it said they, they were persuaded by Paul's words. And, and we will do that. We, we want to help you see the dangers of this world and the reward in following Christ. But listen, we're not here to manipulate you. And I hope that's clear. I hope that if you ever encounter pushback from me, me, me kind of shoving you in a certain direction, I hope you don't feel that that's self-interested or that I'm appealing to anything other than just what God's purposes and will is for your life. We're not here to force this upon you. If you conclude that this is not what you want to be about, that will sadden us, but it will not exasperate us because we're just wanting to come alongside of God's work inside of you. That, that, that's, that's not something can be created from the outside, right? No powerful messages or strategic lighting or creative events can do that for you. God has to awaken you. And, and if he has, then, then we won't have to be constantly beating on you to change and to act like this matters, right? Your, your parents won't have to twist your arm to get you to do the right thing. And it doesn't mean 
You won't sometimes need correction, reminders, and encouragement to continue. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be your parents or your youth leaders or your pastors getting on your case enough that will cause you to grow. Right? Like the Thessalonians, if you're chosen by God and powerfully awakened to his purposes, you will be pursuing the Lord even in the most opposing and corrosive environments. There was nothing about life in first century Thessalonica that made it easy to be a Christian, let alone one whose reputation was known in the surrounding area. And they didn't have Paul. And they didn't have the people who taught them about the faith present with them and saying, hey, keep going. You really ought to do this. They were won by a Savior. They were won over to a real and sincere faith and it, it could not help but have an effect on them. It could not help but cause them to, to love this word and to draw near to Christ with affection and to shape their life after his will because they were amazed. They were loved. God had chosen them. Let's stand together. Settings like this, I've I want this to be more than words. I want there to be more than just human speech motivating you. It's not enough. So I'm desperate for God to speak and for you to hear. He'd awaken you. He'd, he'd arouse you. There, there would be a rising in your soul to the living God Maybe for the first time. Or maybe there's a, there, there's a calling back to himself because you hear it again. You hear it's the sound of your creator. You know that voice. You know the way it's been drowned out in life. But you experience your maker, your savior addressing you. That's, that's what I've been praying you would encounter this week whether tonight or in any of these settings that when we open up this book and we, we encourage you to run after certain things and experience certain qualities in your life that it would not be myself or anyone else whose words matter most you would hear God so we're going to just spend some time singing and worshiping God and listening to what he has to say maybe for some of us it's just the assurance of I love you why have you forgotten why have you made that into something trivial when it was so costly when I could have abandoned you in the trash heap of lives I treated myself Let's not make that into something familiar as radical news as the power to affect everything else about your world. So I want to 
allow us to just spend a little time worshiping the Lord, and then I'll close us from there. Thank you.